Good morning, everybody. I've got a very special treat for you this morning. Often we do Ask Dr. Doreen and we do just one hour live. And this morning, for those of you who are tuning in live, you're going to get a special treat because we're going to do two hours live in just a second. The second hour, we're not going to, other than doing it live, we're not going to release that until next week. So only those of you who are watching live are going to get this special treat. So my friends, it's time for Ask Dr. Doreen. The advice and opinions expressed by the hosts of Autism Live and her guests are meant solely as suggestion and should not be in any way construed as child-specific advice. Any choices you make in determining your child's treatment are completely at your own discretion. Dr. Doreen Grand-Pichet is the... Dr. Doreen is an expert in autism. Doreen Grand-Pichet. Dr. Grand Pichet. Dr. Doreen Grand-Pichet. Dr. Doreen Grand-Pichet is a visionary in the field of autism. Now you can ask her questions on Ask Dr. Doreen. Good morning and welcome to this very special edition of Ask Dr. Doreen. I'm Shannon Penrod and I'm here with the fabulous, the wonderful Dr. Doreen Grampiche herself. Good morning and welcome. Thank you and good morning. How are you? I'm excited to be here and I'm excited. We talk about this every once in a while, but for those of you who are just tuning in, we're going to do two hours live this morning. And then the second hour, we won't air again. It won't be podcast until next week. It'll drop next week. But for those of you who are watching live, uh, it's a rare opportunity to get to see extra and more. And you can be writing questions throughout both hours. And we do have a lot of questions that have come in in the last week, some of them that I really want to get to. I want to say, though, first of all, for those of you who are watching, we're live right now on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and about a dozen other sites. Traven will be showing you some of those sites in just a second. Also want to let you know that this first hour will be podcast almost immediately after Mm -hmm. the show, and the second hour will be podcast next week. And uh, it's available wherever you get your podcasts. And actually, I should qualify that. Wherever you can download a podcast for free. It is no cost to you to download the podcast. I do want to remind everybody that we were doing the podcast in both video and audio everywhere. And then you guys resoundingly told us that you don't need the video when you're downloading the podcast, that you like to take us on the go. We appreciate that. Uh, I love that some of you are walking or driving and listening. So uh, right now, if you want to watch after the fact and you want to watch a video, the place to do that is YouTube. Everywhere else, you can download the audio podcast for free. And let us know if you need something different than that. But we're thrilled and delighted to be here. We've got people who are already writing in. Kansa, we're saying hello and good morning to you. Holly, Pam, um, Pam, it's Parker's mother. Pam, I feel like I'm meeting a rock star. My heart beat faster when I saw that, Pam. Pam, I like you and I have to have coffee sometime. Uh, what an amazing son you have. It's I such agree, a delight. Right? We oh, all we love, love Parker. Parker. Pam, it's nice uh, to have you. Yes. Uh, Dark Angel, you're here with us. We love that. And Liliana is already saying good morning from Riverside. 
If you would like a shout out, please send in your question or your comment uh, because we're following them as closely as we can. Uh, and Holly says, thank you for this special. And do, I thank you for this special. Oh, it's so, so lovely to be able to finally <laughs> answer all the questions. Yes, hopefully. <laughs> I don't know that we're all, we will get to all of them, but we're going to try. For those of you who don't know Dr. Grampy Shea, she's a true expert in the field of autism. She's been working in this field for more than 40, yes, I said four zero years. She's worked with all kinds of individuals across the spectrum from very young babies even up through senior citizens. She is known and renowned for being someone who looks at the whole individual, not just a diagnosis, is interested in their medical health and well-being, their ability to learn, their ability to communicate their needs, their welfare, but also for the welfare of the families around them who love them. So one of the many reasons why I adore and follow her. Thank you, Sharon. Um, and you can watch her here, but you can also watch her on TikTok and on Instagram. Uh, she's where all the hip happening things are. Um, I'm not that hip. I, don't, I haven't figured out Instagram yet. I'm not even playing. But uh, that's okay. Trayvon understands it. You understand it, and I'm oh, just Instagram riding the Instagram is much easier than TikTok. TikTok is the one to figure out. Well, and I don't really understand TikTok except to watch. Yeah. And, and sometimes I will go down, not often, but sometimes I go down that rabbit hill and rabbit hole hill, oh. whatever. And then and I watch all the crazy things like for a while when people were having to start their car, have it in gear, and sing and dance and run and to get into stupidest thing I've ever seen in my life. I, I mean, that's, that's a stupid, stupid thing. I'd much rather watch you talk about all the possibilities for us and our kids on TikTok. It's a, Thank you. It's a much better use of your time. Can I say that? Um, Oh, okay. Pam, uh, I see. But I'm excited that you're there with with Parker watching. Uh, that's super, super fun and a thrill. I, I, I'm sorry that the internet is down in your house, but I'm sort of thrilled yeah. <laughs> that we get to be here with you, Pam. Uh, Pam, you're a rock star. Okay. So uh, anyway, Dr. Grand Pichet is here to answer your questions. We do have to give the disclaimer that there is no expert in any field that could give individual specific advice in this format. It's too hard. Mm -hmm. um, even, you know, those of you who we get to know, we don't get to know everything, right? right? right. And it's, it's much easier to give expert advice when you have eyes on the situation. But we do encourage you to write in as extensively as you want, especially to include the general area that you're writing from because services are different in different places of the world. Definitely. Um, and tell Dr. Grampichet what's going on, what's on your heart, what you have questions about. She's very intuitive and she will ask you more questions, which is extra fun. And then she will let you know what her thoughts are on it, but then you can take that back to the expert that you have that has eyes on the situation. So if everybody understands those ground rules, we can sort of jump in. May is saying hello from uh, Rhode Island. Yay! Uh, and Esoteric Gold. We're thrilled that you're here with us as well. Okay. I want to uh, say that every show now we're starting with a theme. Yes. And today's theme is talking about stimming. Oh, okay. So I wondered if you could start, and then we have a lot of questions that actually have to do with a lot of uh, automatically reinforcing, which is not necessarily the same as stimming, but I, I think that this is one of the great misunderstood areas of autism, this idea, and, we, and everybody uses this term stimming. Mm -hmm. I hate it. Mm -hmm. I, I super hate it. Is somebody sneaking in? <laughs> <laughs> you, we're, we're on, hello, uh, 
Okay, thank you. No, we just have a delivery from FedEx Traven at the door. <laughs> so the FedEx gentleman just joined us almost on camera. Thank you. <laughs> That's never happened before. Uh, yes. No, and Traven has reminded me it isn't stimming. Uh, so I had Traven in the ear and the FedEx man at the door. If we just had a cat that needed to go in, in a kitty litter box, <laughs> I would have had a full compliment here. Okay, so I said it was stimming because my head was on that, but it's sensory issues. We're talking about sensory issues today. Oh, I today, see. Today we're which, talking about sensory yes, issues. But okay. eventually we'll talk about because more of the questions were about stimming, but we're talking I about see. sensory issues That's this wonderful. Morning. That's wonderful. Uh, we'll it's talk about those... stimming another day. Yeah, and, uh, and maybe we can talk about it in the second hour. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah, know, yeah. The thing about sensory issues... I love and I'm very happy we're getting to talk about it today Shannon yeah. is that they these issues were not even recognized as part of the diagnosis of autism until the last diagnostic manual yeah. came out which is I crazy was, it is crazy because for years and years I mean I would say that even you know and, and I've often talked about how one of the benefits of being able to be in this field for 42 years is that you see the change of autism, like you see how autism itself has changed or the yeah. symptoms that we see in the kids, right? And in the 70s and 80s, it was a very, very severe disability, like extremely severe. I can't even explain how, like when I say severe, mm -hmm. <laughs> we're talking yeah. extreme self-injurious behaviors mm -hmm. and so on. And it seemed very, like the, the thing that seemed very obvious to me was that a lot of the children were suffering from sensory overload mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. it yet it was not even recognized in fact you know when occupational therapy first brought in uh, sensory integration uh, it was kind of mocked and mm -hmm. people were like what is this now you know yes and so I'm very happy that in the last diagnostic manual which I think was like 2013 or something yes. uh, we were able to add sensory dysregulation as one of the symptoms, actually core symptoms of autism. You know, because I, I, I can remember in 2013 when the new criteria was coming out and people were panicking. Mm -hmm. And I just want to remind everybody, because I say this about you all the time, that I truly think you're a visionary and I think that you have the ability to see around corners. Mm -hmm. You have a very logical head, you're very good at perspective taking and you, you see trends, you put things together. Um, and Everybody was freaking out, and I you was were not happy with it. You yeah. were not, and you were saying yeah. everybody, everybody should take a breath, let this pl play out. I, I think especially the people who had been previously diagnosed as Aspergers were yes. very concerned that they were being nullified, yes. that they were going to be, you know, just wiped out of everything. And you were the the calm head in the middle of the storm who was saying, I think this is going to shake the way, if it works properly, this is going to shake down to more services for you. Yeah. Because too often people were saying, well, you know, you can do this one thing, so therefore you don't need help and support. Well, actually, I mean, even more than that, like when you had in the past, when you had a diagnosis of Asperger's, mm -hmm. you literally were not eligible for certain services yeah. with that diagnosis. Yeah. And so the fact that they now, you know, merged Asperger's and kind of what used to be was PDDNOS, if you remember, which yes. was pervasive developmental disorder not otherwise specified. Which is, <laughs> but you know, the parents don't think know. of it as that. Uh, parents say pediatrician didn't diagnose. Oh, really? Because that, that's what that. PDD that's stands hilarious. for. Yes, that's, so that's what. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So like all of that now became kind of part of the spectrum. 
And because it became part of the spectrum, no matter what area of the spectrum you were on, you were eligible at least yes. for services, which I think was important. And sensory was brought in, which is another really important thing. But the other thing that was brought in was medical. Yes. Which I love the fact that there was actually reference to the fact that there might be medical underlying medical issues, which I think is huge, huge. Yeah. So I just want to remind everybody that, you know, you were the person who was saying, I think we're going to get more services for people who otherwise right. in the past would have been would considered not. Asperger's. I think that, you know, you were, you were saying we're going to include medical issues in right. this. You were also somebody who said we're going to, it's now going to address sensory issues yeah. and there's going to be a excited. renaissance yeah. there. But the other thing that I remember you championing was that they changed a clause in it that, um, and I don't remember what the wording is now, but it was something about uh, it has to have presented before a certain age. Before age three, right. And that's kind of, I mean, it was there before, but it is now, <clears throat> it's pretty clear that it has to present before age three. And that is, that's also an important part of yeah. this. Yeah. 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 So, um, so just more proof of why people should listen to oh, you because you, you saw all of that. <laughs> so we're talking about sensory issues. So it is a part of it now and a recognized part of it, and people should not be pooing that. And I think it's a real measure of, you know, when you talk to somebody about what you, what your or your child's sensory issues are, if they are like, oh, well, you know, that's not a part of this, I think those are people to walk away from. Not necessarily run, but yeah. walk away from. <laughs> well, or educate, right? I mean, that's, if you yeah. can, right? Yes. If you can. And a lot of times people... It's just, you know, this is a field that where we are still learning. Yeah. And so when people are closed-minded about things, it just drives me nuts, right? Because even today I opened up my social media and the very first thing I saw was three comments from people. I had a video, I think, on TikTok which basically said, I think the, the, the title of the video is even like, what is good ABA? Yeah. And there was just the first three comments were, there is no good ABA. Right. And it's, you know, we cannot be closed minded when it comes to, to autism and autism treatment. We're yeah. still learning. We have to be open to different things and, and listen. Yes, absolutely. I want to acknowledge um, Pam, who says uh, that 20 years ago, uh, and nobody was saying anything about sensory issues and it was really hard. Anna, who's saying hello. And Dark Angel asks the question, how do I know if my son has severe autism? Which right. is an interesting question. It's actually a great question. Um, and it has to do with, I think, a couple of different things. It has to do with the number of symptoms that your child presents. Because... Within so the diagnosis of autism, and if the viewers want, I can actually go through it at one point where we just focus on the diagnostic criteria at a different yeah. show. And the diagnosis has now it has two kind of sections. One section is the what we call social communication section, and the other section is the the repetitive, stereotypical repetitive behaviors, the stimming, as you referred to yes. before. And, well, actually, the, the stereotypic repetitive behaviors is where also they've, <laughs> under that category, they've also listed the sensory and so on. But anyway, mm -hmm. there's a number of symptoms within each. And you don't have to have all symptoms. You just have to have a certain number within each category. Now, if you happen to have more of those, then obviously there, you're just, there's a little bit of more of the disability, right, that you're dealing with. So, for instance... 
in social communication, it could be that you are unable to uh, interact with peers. And of course, that is, you know, vocally interact with peers or verbally interact with peers. And that's difficult, right? That for sure is a yeah. difficult thing. Um, but you could have that and on top of that also have uh, a delay in non-vocal non uh, or uh, types of communication like eye contact and body gestures and so on, which means at that point you're also not able to look at people, not able to read body language, not able to understand a lot of nuances of communication. So the more symptoms you have, the more the disability is affecting you. Mm -hmm. um, now, also within each of the symptoms, you could have multiple uh, issues. Yeah. For example, you know, when we talk about self-stimulatory behavior or just that category of repetitive stereotypical behaviors, you could have just a, a couple, like for instance, a lot of children who are anxious will line up objects, and that is classified as one of the self-stimulatory behaviors, lining up objects. On the other hand, there are children who have such severe sensory issues going on that they have 10 different self-stimulatory behaviors. For instance, they will not even be able to look, they will be gazing, they will be throwing stuff, they will be spitting just to see the direction of the spit, they will be doing this. So the more symptoms you have, you are struggling with a more severe form of autism because all of these symptoms makes it, make it harder for you to uh, learn. Yeah. And I think that is the key to the severity aspects of it. And we do have, Shannon, that's the other reason I really liked the 2013 yeah. uh, version, is that now that they put kind of ASD as a whole into one spectrum, what they also did was they gave us the ability to put down in each area, so one in the area mm -hmm. of social communication and one in the area of stereotypic repetitive behaviors, a number yes. from one to three indicating severity, and the way they define it is indicating the level of support required. Yes. So if it's a one, you need a certain number amount of support, but if it's a three, you need a ton of support in that area. Yeah. And this is super important because a lot of people, when they um, diagnose, they do it wrong. And, <laughs> you give one number. I mean, it's just, yeah. you give one number, and you <clears throat> cannot give one number because there are children who are pretty high functioning and very minimally affected in the area of, let's say, stereotypic repetitive behavior, so they would get a one there, but they're very affected in the area of social communication, so they might get a three there. Yeah. And a child whose diagnosis is three, one, is extremely different from a child whose diagnosis is one, three. Yes. I mean, it's just, the it's important because that helps us as diagnosticians paint a picture yeah. of the particular child's needs. And until we know more about autism, that's all we have. We have the ability to describe each individual as accurately as we can yeah. so that we can treat them according to their needs and not according to a cookbook. So that, that's why I'm very, like, I think those numbers are super important. So what I remember um, when my son was first being diagnosed was that all I wanted was somebody to be honest with me and say, you know, yep. where, where is my child on this spectrum? Right. Like, is my kid going to be Bill Gates 
or is my kid ever going to be out of diapers? He was two and a half. Yep. And I just wanted somebody to be honest with me about that. And no one would be. And I, I, I railed against that. I was like, why won't somebody? Be? And sometimes people would say, well, we just don't know. Yeah. We don't know where he's going to end up. Um, and I, and I sort of wanted, I needed somebody to tell me like, what was the best, best case scenario? What was the worst case scenario? Now looking back on it, I'm glad that no one did because then I had to go out and, and I wouldn't look for the worst case scenario. I would look for the best case scenario. And I would ask questions of how did you get there? Yes. But later on, when my son was doing better, I got to look at documents and see that they had classified him. Back then it was, there would be mild to moderate or moderate to severe. Mm -hmm. And he was classified as moderate to severe. And I know. And I think that would have devastated me yes. when he was little. I think that would have taken the wind out of my sails and I might not have been able to do what I did. Right. Right? So I'm kind of glad that nobody told me that. But I do want to put that into people's backpacks that what they say about you and your child when people say things when they are younger, that there are, there are different times and places mm-hmm. in, in the course of a parent's time with their child with autism and their child's development. And, and I want to say that if your child is under the age of five, take it all with a grain of salt. Well, even if they're over the age of five, because the, the reason that, that they're learning, so yes. there's changes. Yes. So you could, and I have started with children who are severe. I mean, when you say severe, that means the child is continuously self-stimulating. So yes. like... And I will describe a child to you, and I want to see if you can guess. Mm. They're running around in circles and mm-hmm. going, like that, yeah. right? Yeah. Not vocalizing at all, not interacting at all. Very, yeah. very uh, resistant to any kind of learning. Tiptoeing everywhere and just yeah. running extremely hyper. And, uh, you know, not, in a, not able to communicate their needs, not potty trained, not resp- not even paying attention to what's going on in the environment, that would be a child who's severe. But then over time, yeah. that child learns to stop running around yeah. and sit down and pay attention. And that child learns to request things instead of hitting and being aggressive. And that child learns to listen yeah. and learn from their environment, observational learning. And as that happens, they're no longer severe. Right, yeah. and they are still affected, but now they yeah. might be moderately and then very lightly affected, and then that's how we actually help children overcome this diagnosis, right? Yes. Is they learn, yes. and while and it doesn't have to be a young child, it could be anyone if you th- really think about it, Shannon. If you're learning to overcome those parts of your disability, yes, then you're no longer struggling with them. It's really that simple. And I love that. And I, you know, and I get emotional about it because, you know, you, what, you didn't get to meet Jem until he was a little bit older, but right. people that you trained right. were working with him. And, and it was like a year ago that I showed you video of him yeah. and you were like, oh, wow. uh, you know, um, because he'd made so much progress by the yes. time you got to actually be in the room with him, which I fought for, by the way. Um, but anyway... I, I don't mean to discount the, the children that are over the age of five. What I was trying to say is that I wouldn't listen to what anybody says prognosis-wise with a child under five. I, I, would, I would take it with a complete grain of salt. When your child is between the ages of a six and ten, I would not give up at all. 
I would still be fighting, but I would be asking more pointed questions if your child has already been in therapy and not making progress. Yes. I do see that when children start to be 11, and, 11 to 13, that that is when the reality police kind of come in and sometimes parents have to go through a grieving process to realize, okay, um, I'm not going to win the, the lottery here in terms of my child, you Completely know. Completely losing all sense <clears throat> Right. And that, you know, and maybe there's something else that's going on in there, and it really is a very hard time. Yes. Between the ages of 11 and 13, because it's really when you start, I think on both sides of the fence, you start to say, okay, I have to change what I think is going to happen. And, and I'm going to yeah. say that, you know, um, my good friend Nancy Osbaugh Jackson, who's going to be here on Thursday to do our Halloween show, what was interesting was that we were very good friends with boys on the spectrum. Yes. And we had to go through that time together with different outcomes. Oh, absolutely. And, absolutely. And that during that period of time, Nancy was realizing, oh, I'm not, my child is not going to recover. Mm -hmm. And I need to start making plans for the future of how we're going to continue to help him to grow. And he has. Yes. Um, but that what his life is going to look like and how much support he's going to need. And it was really devastatingly hard for her. And I was sitting directly next to her, hosting a show with her, with a child that it was occurring to me that maybe my child was going to be, like, and that hadn't, as much as I had fought for that, I didn't have a world prepared for him to go away to college. Yeah. I didn't have a world prepared for that he was not going to live at home, you know, because it's that Schrodinger's cat of you don't know what it's going to be, and then suddenly you, you do get mm -hmm. an idea of what it's going to be, and you have to deal with the outcome. And believe me, I have survivor guilt, you guys. And Nancy and I have shared that with each other and shared a lot of tears over it. It's a hard time, that period of time. Sure. But I don't want, I think that that, that that moment when the child is 13, when you're having to like look at, okay, which road am I probably on? I think so often people have four-year-olds and they want to know. And I don't want them to know it for. So this is, ex <clears throat> this is kind of an important discussion because in, yeah. I think in your case, it was 11 to 13. Yes. There are parents who will know at six okay there are parents who will still not know at 13 yeah so it is it's very very hard yeah. to know when things have are plateauing yeah because you're living with the child day to day and you won't see the changes um unless you are you know away from the child for six months or something it's uh -huh. just hard to see now, I want to say that the way that I look at it, Shannon, is that he, learning with our kids is interesting because it's we're learning as they're learning. Yeah. It's a very interesting kind of dynamic when you do good therapy because you're not just going in and saying, these are the things you need and I'm going <coughs> to teach them to you and we're good to go. Yeah. You start out with a picture <clears throat> of what you think the child needs. Right? You're like, okay. You, I need to teach you how to request things. I need to teach you how to imitate sound, whatever it might be for that child, right? You have this huge array of skills that you want to teach, and you start. And then as you start this process, you're like, oh, well, you're not learning, so I guess I have to figure out why. And you put your curriculum aside for a minute, which is the content, and you start figuring out the child's modality of learning. And this is per very pertinent to the whole yes. sensory issue. Yes. And you start thinking, okay, wait a minute. You're 
a fully visual child. And everything I've been saying to you right now is just coming in as blah, 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 and makes no sense at all unless I show it to you visually when I'm trying to teach you because you learn visually. And then as you do that, then you start to be like, oh, you're learning again, great. So now we're off the plateau and jumping up again, right? And then you hit another phase where you're like, hmm, and this could be at any age. And you're like, okay, you're, the learning has stopped or slowed down. What's going on now? And then you're, that, and that could be a stage where a parent could mistakenly think it's over. Yeah. It's over, he's <clears> never <throat> gonna learn. And then I come in and I'm like, no, 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 no. Let's look at his sleep. Let's look at his medical. Let's look at his environment. Let's look at the people around him. Is there someone, uh, you know, giving clues where they shouldn't? Is there some environment that is causing him so much anxiety that he's no longer willing to learn? Are we overloading him? Is there just too much going on and not enough reinforcement? Is he not feeling well in his gut? Is he not sleeping? And that's, these are all the things that are super, super, super important because you could conclude that the child is stopping and this is where he's going to be forever. Or you could look at yourself and you could figure out what you're doing wrong or mm. what's missing <clears throat> And un until you do that, no matter what age, 5, 6, 13, whatever it is, and you do everything we so far know in science, and that's kind of one of the things for me is that I regret so many things we learned later that I would have, some of my children in the 80s would have benefited from, but we yeah. just didn't know. Yeah. You know, and as you learn and you get better, and there's still room for a lot of learning, but as a parent, you have to be open and you have to listen to everyone and you have to try different things until and you have to see what works for your child and until you do that you can't make any conclusions about your child's abilities because the one thing that is for certain with our kids on the spectrum is they learn differently their sensory input is different yeah and that's kind of what we're talking about which is you know the sensory issues but I, this is why, I, I, you know, one of the many reasons why I love you is because you have such a, a sense of hope and listening to the individual. Oh, and, for sure. And that we as parents should not give up. So I love that. Hey, we're saying hello to Michael from Philadelphia. And Anna um, Anna's asking a specific question about the difference between intellectual disability versus autism. And I think we'll get to that in a minute. But somebody has been waiting. They asked the first question. I want to make sure we get to their question. I have a question that my child jumps while while pooping. He does not know how to squat. He is four and a half years old. And she goes on to say that another prob problem he has, he bangs objects because of sensory issues. How can I resolve this banging issue? So these are... Totally different things, and we can talk about them. One of the things I think that's very helpful to remember is that whenever you are trying to teach a specific behavior, a specific skill, focus on that one skill and not two skills at the same time. It just things are harder when you're, and you and I have talked about this a lot, Shannon. It's like, you know, we see a problem arise in day-to-day -day life, and then we try to deal with it there. Yeah. And that's not the way to teach a skill. So it, for this child, he, you are trying to get him to be toilet trained, 
But part of that process, as you've been doing that, is he doesn't know how to squat. And I, I assume this question is from a part of the world, you know, in the yeah. Middle East, for instance, parts of countries, there are countries where the toilet is actually like a hole in the ground and you yeah. have to squat in order yeah. to go. So what I'm trying to tell you is don't do the, don't try to fix the squatting behavior when it's time to go to the bathroom. Practice the squatting behavior on its own. Yeah. So not when he's going to the bathroom, practice the squatting behavior. So perhaps not even at the toilet, but in different, like just in front of a mirror or sit in front of him and hold his hands and squat and give him a, a word for it, whatever that word may be in your language, where you're saying squat and you push him down and you help him to squat. Yeah. Reward that and then walk away. Keep doing that so that the behavior of squatting becomes a behavior he is not only familiar with, he knows the instruction for it, and he knows that when he does it, he gets rewarded. Yeah. Once you do that a few times, he will learn how to squat, and then you can actually use that command, squat, yeah. when you use the bathroom. So that's very important to separate those two things because otherwise the whole experience of going to the bathroom can become aversive because now you're trying to teach him a new concept, he might not know what yeah. he's doing. He might get confused about what he's doing wrong. You never want to do that. Yeah. So that's how you kind of deal with the squatting issue. The other thing was hitting in banging. Or banging. And I'm not sure, like, what he is banging. But I will tell you that, you know, we had a little child who used to bang things and would hold sticks and bang against things as a sensory uh, item and one of our therapists had the brilliant idea of putting a drum in front of him when he banged and so he would then pick up a stick and bang it on the drum and now he is an incredible drummer incredible and, yeah. and completely fully recovered by the way but we gave him a adaptive way to use that particular need um, and you know I'm not saying you want to allow the individual to uh, hits bang all the time but when you yeah. give the child an out a, a time that is kind of limited but also allowed and something that is adaptive and rewarding then they will focus their their need to hit bang something on that and won't need to do it all day long so that's how you do it you you give the child some Maybe you can use a musical instrument. I'm not sure how he's banging, but maybe you can turn that into something that he's allowed to do a particular portion of the day or hour or whatever it might be. Then the rest of the time you take away that object and prevent it from block it from happening. She you says, always want to be fair. Yeah. She says he bangs every object. Um, exactly. So yeah. you need to identify a specific object where he uses that. It's okay to bang. Anything else, no, you take it away. And so he will learn to discriminate, oh, when I have this particular drumstick, I can bang. Yeah. When I don't have this, I'm not allowed to bang and I need to do something else. And that's the other part of it is keep him occupied with something else. This is called differential reinforcement of incompatible behavior, which means if he's banging like this, give his hands something to do that are incompatible with this motion. Right? So, for instance, drawing might be one, just sitting on his hands, putting his hands in his pocket, holding an object. There's lots of things that are incompatible with this. 
I, I just watched a movie on Netflix. It's on Netflix right now called I Used to Be Famous. And it's, I, I, we, we reviewed it last week, and I, I gave it a bad review because I didn't think it was a great movie. Uh, some of you loved it. There is, I did say that there's a part of it that I love, that there's a, a boy who's actually autistic who was cast in the role of a boy who is oh, autistic like yeah. in the film, and he's a drummer, and he's a real drummer, and the kid is really drumming in the movie. It's a, it's a British movie, and the, the, the child is British, the child, he's a teenager, is, is British, mm -hmm. and um, what's interesting is that he drums on everything. Uh, that he carries his drumsticks with him, and he drums yeah. on the, you know, the, the uh, okay, bus well, seat, yep. and he drums on, and, yep. and the mom has set up a rack with pots, and he drums on those, and they take them and do a concert with it. Yeah, and it yeah. might be fun for you to watch to see that there's a possibility that, um, that at some point this might be his strength. Like, isn't it funny when sometimes when we are, we're like, oh, this is a problem, this is a problem, and it ends up being your child's superpower. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. So it might, might be fun for you to see that and see that it can be shaped into being something that is a superpower. And if... Um, I think I, I think we're totally allowed to say the other drummer because they can go and look him up on the internet that we're aware of is Logan Shepard. It's Logan Ellis Shepard if you're looking for him, um, and he I mean watch him drum and he is absolutely yeah look amazing. at it, look him up on on social media he's he's oh, brilliant yeah brilliant abs chops is what I hear like professional drummers they're, they're like oh that kid has chops yeah um, that I saw him play once with the guitarist from Kiss, and he was like, that kid has chops. Oh, yeah. Right? He's unbelievable. Um, yeah. Absolutely uh, amazing. I do want to make sure that I say hello because I passed over, was it Huma? There it is. Huma from Pakistan. Huma, so thr thrilled that you are here. Uh, okay. Uh, I want to get to some of these questions. Okay. So maybe we should go back to Anna's question. Okay. What are some factors that indicate more on the intellectual disability versus autism? Because this is the big question that we yeah. all want to know too. Yeah. Yeah. Because there are times, I, I remember one of the first questions that I asked was, you know, what, how do I know, is it autism or is it MR was the term that they used at the time. Mental now we, yeah, now we say intellectual disability. How will I know, you know, what those things are? And I learned gradually over the years that there are some kids who have a dual diagnosis of, of course, both of those things. Of course, but know. it is not the majority. No, it's not. And when I started in this field, which would be like you know forty somewhat years ago there was a, a misunderstanding, and actually it was in the diagnostic manual even, that something like 80% of children with autism have mental retardation, oh, MR, which is now called intellectual disability. And I was always kind of frustrated by that because when, the way that you measure MR or ID is through an IQ test, right? So how, you know, typical IQ, most of us, have an IQ of 100. And the way that is determined is we, we do a bunch of activities on a test. So like the test will ask you some, you know, say five numbers forwards, uh, repeat, they'll test your memory, say these numbers backwards, put these objects in the sequence they're supposed to be, uh, you know, whatever. There's like a series of activities, produce this uh, like a matrix or things like that. And then based on each of those sections, you get a score, and then all of those are, the, the total of that is the measurement of your mental age, 
And the way, like, so then that'll be a specific score. And then they divide that by your chronological age, which is your normal age. And then they multiply that by 100. And so if your mental age and your chronological age are the same, uh, then the quotient becomes one, right? Right. D multiplied by 100, your IQ one is 100. Time. And that's average IQ, intelligence quotient IQ. But there's a standard deviation, which means most people, when you do a normal curve of, of the population, are 15 points below or after that. So somewhere we are, most of us, 98% of us, or even higher than that, we're in the range of 85 to 115 IQ. Right. Okay. Now, why is, that there, why is there something wrong with that when it comes to autism? The reason is that those tests are loaded with verbal questions yeah. and instructions. So if I am to take, let's say, if, if I come to you and I say, you know, put these, uh, you know, put the, like for children, the, like some of the tests, IQ tests for children, and tests, by the way, vary. There's, you know, there's a test that's only for two to six, there's a test that for younger than two, there's a test that's six to 16, and so on and so forth, and tests are different age ranges. But the instructions are always verbal. Right? Do this, put this over there and do so on. Or what is this? They're, they require verbal ability. So there's an immediate confound, which is that if you have a delay in language, then you shouldn't be tested this way because your language ability is now interfering with your core intelligence or our ability to see your core intelligence and to measure it, right? So it isn't fair how we're measuring your core intelligence. So. For many, many years, I was just always fighting that and saying, no, no, this is not valid. This cannot be valid. Like, this is a brilliant child. Look at his memory. Yeah. It's crazy. It's amazing what he's able to do, blah, blah, blah. But just because <clears throat> he doesn't have language, we're giving him a lower IQ. And so I would always recommend to parents whose children's, who, who have children whose language is delayed to use tests of intelligence that are for deaf children. They're nonverbal tests of intelligence, and they're much more accurate. And I have had scenarios where a child would come in with an IQ of, let's say, 70, yeah. and then we would give the child an IQ test of a nonverbal type, and then all of a sudden their IQ was showing up as 90, you know? And that always gave me a thrill because right. I'd be like, see, that's their actual intelligence that yeah. we're working with. Now, what is the difference? The difference is a lot. Like, yeah. there are certain behaviors with children with autism that just have absolutely nothing to do with IQ, and they're much more on the sensory area, which mm -hmm. is what we're talking about. So there are children who, you know, a lot of the self-stimulatory behaviors are very specific to autism yeah. and don't really have much to do with intellectual disability. Intellectual disability really is just more about the ability to learn and uh, model, imitate, and so on. And when you have a child who has intellectual disability, you see that. They're not hyper. Most of the time, children with ID are very uh, much more lethargic and calm, and they're not interacting with their environment. Mm -hmm. You'll see children with autism interacting with their environment, maybe not the way you want them to interact with right. their environment, but they're very active with their toys or with their own things. And in fact, you can't even 
get them to calm down for a moment. So the symptoms are quite different. And if you look up, you can even look up kind of online, say DSM-3, DSM symptoms of autism, DSM-5 symptoms of autism, symptoms of intellectual disability, and then you will see that they're quite a different group of symptoms. Okay. I'm going to go to a question that somebody sent in last night that has a little to do with this. My son is four years old. He's nonverbal, classified as intellectually disabled, and severely autistic. He is a very sweet little boy, and I love him very much. He needs a lot of special care and is emotionally and mentally more like a very young two-year-old. He's four now. Yeah. He goes to an autistic specialized preschool and absolutely loves it. I am having some difficulty with recent behaviors and the school isn't really helping with ideas. He likes scripting from YouTube videos, mostly nursery rhymes and songs with alphabets and numbers. The scripting in itself is not a problem. The main problem is that he does not control the volume of his voice at all. Mm -hmm. He will script literally nonstop day and night. Most children, when they wake up at night, become bored and go back to sleep, but he is perfectly happy to entertain himself for hours on end. Does anybody have any suggestions of how to help him understand that there are times that he cannot do these behaviors? At least he has to do them quietly. Given his limitations, simply requesting to be quiet uh, does not work and only pauses his action for about three seconds. I am a single mom and I lack social support. I have also explored every resource in the area and there are not a ton. I am utilizing what is available, but I need more help. That was 16 hours ago. I'm sending this mom a hug. hug. And I hope to God that you are watching or that you will watch this episode because this is super, super important. Yeah. So if you have a child who has a diagnosis of autism and someone gives you a secondary diagnosis of ID, intellectual disability, please, please have your child retested with a non-verbal test of intelligence. These are the Merrill Palmer or the Lighter R. These are the two tests, Merrill Palmer or Lighter R. It's important you do this. Why? Because when your child has a diagnosis of ID, most of the world will simply give up and say, he has intellectual disability. There's no point in trying to teach him this stuff. He's just gonna learn a certain amount. It used to be the case, that used to be the case also with autism, but I think that has changed a little bit. The point I'm trying to make is that it is important that your child be given the opportunity to learn, and especially your child, because your child has potentially, possibly, will have uh, some hyperlexia, maybe, we don't know, but he's scripting numbers and letters. A lot of the kids that script numbers and letters are very strong when it comes to numbers and letters. And that shows up later in their intelligence and it actually skews their intelligence high. So these are kids that later on become known as geniuses, which is very important for you right now because not only is it important to know it so that no doors are closed for him, this mm-hmm. is probably my biggest thing here, is like, don't let them close doors on him. Mm-hmm. The other part of it is that you now know that he is someone who is potentially a visual learner. 
and he will learn these numbers. When my kids learn letters, they teach themselves how to read. That begins to teach them how to speak. It opens up a whole new world for them, and I don't want any hyperlexia. In fact, a lot of kids who have hyperlexia and are very focused on letters and so on do extremely well as opposed to not doing well at all. Now, the issue that you have here is pretty simple, actually. He's scripting. I'm saying, it's so funny. When I, after you've seen thousands of kids over yeah. the years, when someone gives you a scenario, you immediately think of a child. That's and like I, that. That's like that. Yeah. That's exactly yeah. like that. I had a child who was exactly like that and would script so loudly. I mean, it was unbelievable all the <clears> time. <throat> and it was all the, you know, he was into numbers and letters, but he would count. Yeah. Every single possible thing, like he would count stairs as he was going up and down them loudly, one, two, three, four. And let me tell you, after a while, it's, it's unnerving, right? Because yeah. someone who's just repetitively doing that. And he was so into letters and stuff that he had also, he had this system where he had like, you know, put letters into the universe, right? Mm -hmm. And so like if he counted... Uh, you know, X number of ceiling squares, mm -hmm. he would also be able to establish letters into them. Kind of like, what was that um, thing we saw, with the series that had the genius who used to play chess? Yeah, um, oh, uh, Queen's, Queen's Gambit. Gambit. Yeah. Do you remember how yes. she used to, like, look at the ceiling? Mm -hmm. and she used to, So stuff like that. Yeah. I, I remember when I was watching that, I was like, oh, my uh, God, so many of our kids do this kind of yep. stuff. They have yep. the ability to hold visual information in, in space, you know? Yeah. So what you are trying to do right now is just to teach him to do it quietly in his head. And this is a, it's, the, it's a lesson we used to uh, call, we had written and we used to call it saying versus thinking. And it's, it's difficult at first for a young child to learn this concept, but you, all, you have already started it. Because when you sit with him and you say quiet and he does it for three seconds, that's your baseline. That's where you're starting. And all you have to do now is shape that to be longer. And so you will sit with him and you'll say quiet. And you can do this in a multitude of different ways. You can either put a timer. And when the timer buzzes, you will say, good job. And now you can talk and reward and all this. Or you can count on your hands while he's quiet. But you will extend that period of time where he learns that quiet is something that goes on until you say, okay, we can talk now. And that is a really go good thing. And later, when he gets a little bit more advanced, you can actually start, he, it, when he's quiet, by the way, it's not like he has stopped scripting. He can do it in his head. He's doing it in his head. In fact, the same child that I mentioned to you, years later had come to my house because I, his parents actually became very good friends of mine had come to my house, and he uh, <laughs> was so amazing, this child. He is so amazing right now. He's brilliant and, and doing extremely well. But I, it was so cute because he had learned that those, you know, the counting behavior wasn't something that was really acceptable. So he would, like, oh, I want to see your backyard. Can I see your backyard? So I'm like, sure, let's go. So he'd go in the backyard, and he'd walk along the pool and then walk to the back of the thing, the backyard and come back and then he'd, he'd bring it into conversation and he'd say, do you know that your pool is exactly, you know, X feet long and so on and so forth? 
and he would make it a normal conversation. But what right. he had done was he had counted as he was stepping. Right. What, and he had gotten so good at doing this in his head that he could also just converse with you, appear completely fine, yet he was thinking right. it. Which, by the way, is what we do. It's yeah. what every person does, right? If you think for a moment, it's a um, very interesting ex exercise. When you're in your car, turn off the radio. And then all of a sudden, you'll recognize so many more thoughts that mm. you are having. Whereas when your radio is on, you're, you have these thoughts, but the conscious ones are just pertaining to what's going on on music yeah. or radio. And so we have a lot of subconscious thoughts, and they can be scripting, they can be repetition of letters, it doesn't matter. The, the issue is if you can control it and not allow it to be so loud that it disturbs the environment. Yeah. And that's all. And that's sometimes the, the really important point with autism is that we have these sensory things going on, right? I mean... Shannon, you remember one of my older recovered kids who, by the way, I miss and should get in touch with and see how he's doing. Uh, you know, he was a biostatistician doing extremely well. One of the things he taught me was that when he was younger, the sounds that were much louder for him were things like the door opening yeah. and closing. Mm -hmm. And it was really hard for him to focus on language because he would count all those sounds that were, to us, background noise. Mm -hmm. And this is what, again, goes back to the sensory issues, right? We do the things that, are, that make our sensory modalities more feel regulated. And so, you know, the fact that he's <clears throat> counting or, remote, you know, rotely repeating these things is not the issue. It's that he's doing it loudly. You just need to shape the behavior of doing it in your head. Yes. But I think that a lot of our kids don't understand when you verbally say, you know, quiet, uh, they don't understand what that yeah. is. We have to model that behavior. And you can just sit, yeah, um, sit quietly. And one of the, you know, for my son, one of the greatest things anybody ever gave us, they took a piece of pipe and, they, and it had an elbow and an elbow and they would have him speak into it so that he could hear his own voice because yeah. it just goes from one to the other. And then they would have him practice, okay, do it louder so he could hear what it was yeah. and do it softer yeah. and do it very quiet and yeah. whisper. But he could actually hear himself. It never occurred to me that he couldn't hear himself and he didn't know what those words meant. Absolutely. And sometimes we actually even will record something yeah. and play it soft, play it loud so that the child understands. And I practice. We have another lesson, yeah. which is all about soft, louder, 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 so that the child realizes they can control yes. the volume as yes. well. Yes, amazing. Uh, and I'm starting to freak because we, we we've, we've only gotten through some questions, but we have more time. If you're just tuning in, we're staying live for two hours. Uh, and the second hour, we're going to podcast the first hour this week, but the second hour we'll podcast. They did ask for you to repeat the name of the... The tests. The tests, yes. Meryl Palmer and... I, I believe it's M-E-R-R-I-L-P-A-L-M-E-R, -R -E -R, Merrill Palmer, or Lighter R, which is L-E-I-T-E-R-R, -E -R -R, which stands for revised. Okay, and then Erica, I'm just going to say, I feel like I missed part of your question. Sometimes we don't get all of the questions, or I get some of them and you get some of them, but I feel like I've dropped in in the middle of the conversation, so forgive me, because it starts, he loves cords and shoelaces, 
He's gone through so many shoelaces that I've had to buy so many because he pulls on them or pulls them on his mouth. I don't know what to do. He reaches everywhere I put them. He's been acting up a lot, hitting me and throwing himself on the floor, or he bangs his head uh, in the door or on me. Um, and then I think there's more further down, but maybe not. Yeah, and I need to, uh, if you could, Erica, explain to us a little bit more about when you say he pulls on them. Can you give him, uh, let's say, a shoelace or some version of a shoelace, which is something that is just his? And is it possible for him to, whenever he has this need, uh, to pull on something that he kind of takes it out of his pocket and he just like plays with it for a little bit and puts it back? Um, it's If you could explain to us kind of how he does that. Now, putting stuff in his mouth is a very different behavior. Like, this is what I mean. Like, we always have to separate the topographies of behavior. And, like, you know, we definitely don't want to allow him to put it in his mouth, but we do want to allow him to functionally use that in some ways if that's something that he needs. I mean, you know, it's I, I, I come, because I'm from the Middle East, I immediately think of beads, you know, that men hold in their hands and they play with all the time. So I am just wondering if you can describe this behavior, whether we can find something functional adaptive that could, that would be acceptable and that would help him contain it to a certain period of the day or a certain amount of time during his activities. She clarified, he takes his shoes off, or when he has his shoes, he just loves to pull on the laces and chew them or plays with the cords and laces with his hands. Okay. So that's a different issue, right? So I, again, I, I suggest that you try this, which is give him a shoelace, which is not on his shoes. And I also recommend that maybe for a little while you uh, buy him Velcro shoes so that there's it's a clear distinction for him that he's not going to, he needs to forget about going down to his shoes. You do not want to allow him, obviously, to put those in his mouth. So you just stop him. That's called blocking. Um, and you reward uh, periods of time that he goes without putting those in his mouth or pulling them. Now, meanwhile, if he has some item, he could have like a toy shoe or something that has a, you know, he's playing with it in his hands as opposed to his own shoes, and then he is compliant with regards to putting it away, There's that's totally fine at this point. There you go. There you go. Okay, we've got so many questions coming in, and I have more um, below. Um, really quickly, uh, does speech impairment cause by HPHPA a permanent condition? I don't know what that is. Uh, I think you're referring to a medical condition. Maybe you can write back in and explain to us um, what so HP, we can talk HPA about, yeah, is. So we can talk about it a little bit more. Uh, Jennifer has written in and said that she's asked for accommodations at the school without result and without the diagnosis of deaf, they will not accommodate. But I think, you know, sometimes, you you know, school can be so... <laughs> Like, I used to work in the public school system, and sometimes they admire themselves in their own paperwork, and I think it's mostly fear, you guys. But but when you say ask for accommodation, you're saying get it privately, not through the school, right? Or you can ask the school, but they may not do it. To, to have the test, an IQ test administered um, to nonverbal people. Yeah, you might not 
No, they. Well, first of all, a lot of schools are not allowed to do school uh, IQ testing. That that was part of the law. Yeah. So I'm not sure that you should be going to your school anywhere, Jennifer. I don't know what state you're in, but I would recommend that you get a private IQ test done, definitely, and then take that to the school so that they are aware of his intelligence. Okay, and, and then she went on to say, what about sensory processing, nonverbal autism, ID, and ADHD unattentive? Any suggestions? I think we would need to be, do we need more specific, specific um, well, we need more time to talk about that, that's for sure. <laughs> oh, okay. So, yeah, because we're talking about now intellectual disability as well as nonverbal autism, as well as ADHD, the unattentive okay. type. So well, that's we're, a lot going on there. We're at the hour, so I think we're going to pause for just a second and say for, for those of you who are watching this podcast recorded, there will be an addition to this that will be dropping next week. Um, for everybody who's watching live, stay tuned. But I do want to thank those of you who were with us during this hour and watched the show live and tell you to make sure that you're watching later this week because on Thursday we are having the Let's Talk Autism with Shannon and Nancy Halloween show. If you've tuned in throughout the years, Nancy and I always wear costumes and sometimes it's highly successful and sometimes it's not. I can't even begin to tell you what this year will be because, you know, uh, it's a secret. I could tell you, but then bad things would happen. Uh, I would be chastised completely for that. Anyway, I also want to let people know that if you um, are in the Los Angeles area, there aren't very many tickets left, but there are a couple of tickets. I'm not sure that there are tickets. I should say that. But um, there's a very important event that's happening this Saturday. That's the All Ghouls Gala. It is the first ever All Ghouls Gala, and Mm -hmm. it's a really a good time. I'm not sure that there are tickets, but you could look and see. Please check. Yeah, because we have. I think we are past our. Capacity, but maybe not. I don't okay. know. Please check. And, if, well, and again, if you also, even if you can't purchase a ticket, uh, feel free to donate. We are absolutely, um, you know, the, the, the event is uh, to benefit ACT Autism Care Today, and that and Autism Care Today uh, funds all sorts of things for families uh, safety equipment, communication devices, sensory equipment. Uh, co-pays, all kinds of stuff. So any kind of support you can give us, we appreciate. Okay, so we're going to thank you for joining us. We're going to go to a commercial for the All Ghouls Gala, and then we're going to be right back to continue with our two. So stick with us. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. 